think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, welcome to the Boys in Short Pants. This is episode 40, the 41st episode. I'm Laurent Carbonell. I'm Nathan Renville. And we have with us today a special guest, Angela McEwen of the Canadian Labour Congress. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Angela is a trade and social policy expert there. Uh, I think you work specifically in the social policy branch, but... Yes. yes. Yeah. So we call it social and economic policy. Right. And, uh, okay, so that, that's pretty broad. Yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I... You're pretty well known. You've appeared in lots of places for your, your work on trade and uh, especially EI and other sort of social policies. Um, I remember, for instance, last year you came to the Broadband Institute. Uh, we actually discussed that on the show, I think, uh, about your sort of uh, trade debate with uh, Armin Yelnizian on your side. And then, oh, I don't remember the name of the two gentlemen across uh, the way. Brett House, right. who's a Scotiabank economist. And yeah, I don't remember either. He's from the Ecofiscal Policy. Ah, uh, yes, Ecofiscal Commission. Yeah, okay. Well, it's terrible. I can't. Yeah, remember that's okay. It's been yes. a while. But yes, that was uh, that was very good. So we want to have Angela on to talk about uh, trade is a big news item in the last couple of weeks with NAFTA renegotiation and months with NAFTA renegotiation. Um, of course, the CPTPP, the Union Improved. What day? Are, we're the twenty fifth today. So actually, round seven of NAFTA kicks off today in Mexico City. Okay, well there we go. And uh, Mercosur uh, with South America. Apparently, we have some trade talks uh, developing there. So I wanted to start by discussing a little bit of what the shape of these negotiations negotiations have been for Canada. Kind of what we're looking to get out of it, and sort of what your take on how those things have gone, uh, starting with NAFTA. Okay, so when we started talking about. NAFTA. It really came about because Trump wanted to renegotiate NAFTA because he had been talking to uh, about it during the presidential election. And he had been talking to the base about how they'd been screwed by NAFTA and they needed a better deal uh, for the U.S. So they pulled out of the TPP. They started negotiating NAFTA and they wanted um, more benefits for, he said, workers. And um, so as kind of the left in Canada we uh, unions and a bunch of our allies got together and we talked about what would we want to see in a renegotiated NAFTA that might actually Trump might actually go for. Um, and so we've proposed really strong um, labor uh, chapter because the original NAFTA has a side agreement. Um, and we thought that might be something that would fit into Trump's rhetoric. Um, we talked about maybe getting rid of Chapter 11, which is the uh, investor state dispute settlement mechanism where Canada has been, you know, the most sued under this. And it was an early version of it. So it's got a lot of problems uh, in its its construction, which is, you know, why it would be great to get rid of it. And, um, and we talked about other things that probably uh, we wouldn't be able to get out of Trump, but what would we like to talk about? Mm -hmm. So we'd like to talk about um, under the Trudeau's government's idea about progressive trade. Well, let's talk about the Paris uh, Accord. How can we respect or um, carve out of trade agreements the types of things that we need to do to meet our international obligations mm -hmm. on climate, on the United Nations declarations on indigenous people, on gender? And um, and we wanted to talk about labor mobility, but that uh, is a no go with Trump, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh... yeah. So we wanted to talk about you know modernizing the types of occupations that could travel back and forth across the border. The Canadian government wanted that too, but it's just kind of a no go. Okay. 
Yeah, because that's that's sort of an interesting provision of NAFTA. Because for people who aren't familiar, uh, NAFTA allows basically people with um, job offers or like professional qualifications in certain fields. Just basically, you show up at the U.S. border and you say, "Hi, I'm a, an urban planner or an economist," and they say, "Okay." Great, and then you're let in. And you can work uh, for two to three years, and then you can renew it if you want. And, but yeah. as I understand it, sort of the issue there was that because NAFTA was negotiated originally in the 80s, um, all the jobs and sort of fields covered under the NAFTA visas are all... Yeah, that's yeah. that was exactly where I was going. Yeah, we're, uh, we're sort of <laughs> it's stuck in the 80s years and don't recognize the tech sectors and some of the different human capital industries that now exist and are now the ones that are really yeah. searching for workers. Yeah. Um, so this is really something that like a good agreement would have a sort of regular revision kind of yes, mechanism exactly. for? Yes, exactly. You would have some way of updating which types of... And it's, it's particularly for technical trades, actually, because if you have any university degree, you can usually qualify. Um, if you have a computer science degree that existed uh, in the 90s, so you can go. But if you have certain technical skills, if you might not be recognized. So, for instance, I, I have friends who work in the tech sector, but they never actually got their formal degree because the tech sector isn't big on formal degrees. Yeah. So 10 years experience coding doesn't, doesn't, doesn't cut, cut it. it. Rough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the building trades use that a lot, and uh, nurses also. Oh, okay. So there is lots of, you know, there may be a spike in demand on one side of the border or the other for plumbers or electricians, and it can sometimes be really difficult if they aren't formally recognized in the deal to get people actually moving back and forth. And this is something that's good for um, the workers on both sides of the border yeah. kind of thing, right? So with these sort of demands in mind, uh, how has the sort of the different rounds of renegotiation gone for Canada? So, yeah, I guess the one demand that I didn't mention was being included in the talks, right? Mm -hmm. Having some kind of consultation and, and knowing what was going on. And so NAFTA round is certainly far and above better than anything we had um, when we were initially negotiating the TPP. So when we were initially negotiating TPP or CETA, Maybe once every couple of months, there would be a phone call. It was one way. It was a webinar. You could type questions in to the <laughs> webinar thing, and they could ignore the questions. Not exactly an <laughs> equal partnership there. Yeah. No way. Now we've got regular phone calls after each round. You're on with a whole bunch of different um, other stakeholders, so you can kind of hear the different questions and concerns that are being raised. Uh, and they'll answer your questions. And if they can't answer your question on the call, they'll get back to you later and they'll send you an email with a specific answer to your question about how does this affect, you know, supply management or whatever. So on that front, this has been um, leaps and bounds in terms of transparency better. We can also go to the rounds uh, where they're happening and meet with negotiators. And so okay. we'll tell um, Global Affairs we're coming to this round from this day to this day. Can we meet with, you know, the people negotiating regulations, government procurement, um, labor, and they'll arrange for meetings okay. with us, um, which has been fantastic. Actually, yeah. we've learned a lot about what's going on that way. Is that more or less the same access that uh, sort of other interest groups would have? More or less. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So otherwise, it's just the negotiators at the tables. But, exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's just the negotiators at the tables. But then if you want to um, be there outside of the negotiations so that you can either find out what's happening or be able to inform negotiators how that might affect 
your industry. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of can. a lot of periphery events. I know people went to the Montreal one, and there's sort of the receptions afterwards where you get the informal banter and the discussion, and that's where perhaps some of the informal negotiations take place as well. And those are often open or hosted by stakeholders. Exactly. And so that can be more difficult for the left because we don't have the money to host the fancy um, things that, that other, yeah. they're pricey, right? <laughs> and there's a competition. So when the, the ground was in Ottawa, we were trying to get people to come. We rented the hub downtown and we like catered some sandwiches and we're, and had some bottles of wine and we're like, come to our little thing and talk to us. And the negotiator's like, well, that one looks fancier. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd say it's sort of a, a improved access though, For sure. still not equal. There's to, no, uh, there's no way it can be a level playing field because right. we just don't have the money yeah. to okay. compete, right? Or the resources. Yeah. Um, but the government, from the government's part, it's, right. it's intentionally equal, as equal as they can make it. I right. think, yeah. That so is, that is very liberal government. Yes. <laughs> so equal playing field by technically, but I, I want to push on that point a little bit. When you guys are referring to the left here, who specifically are you referring to? Because it strikes me that some of the large unions have sort of the money, the capital, and the access in these events, as well as perhaps some of the fancier receptions. So, so I, I just want to divide. Yeah. Unifor has absolutely put resources into this. Yeah. Um, and they've had fancier receptions. Yes. Um, and, but their their workers are like really directly affected yeah. by this as auto well. Parts right? The auto sector, sector yeah. is huge, so it makes sense for them to be there. If you're talking about general concerns, though, about government procurement, privatization of public services, um, those impacts are over a longer period of time. There's not as an immediate a threat, and so it can be very difficult actually to uh, get resources together to pay attention to all of these details and all of the the impacts to say, like, look, there's going to be a diffusive impact from this thing happening. We have to pay attention and be involved. Yeah. So what you're sort of alluding to, I, I just want to clarify this because I'm not as familiar with sort of the union history and compositions as perhaps both of you. Yeah. Um, but Laura let off with saying you work for CLC. Is that yes. correct? And so CLC's union base represents, are you saying more government workers, more, what, what half, sort of the half composition? Public, half would be public sector, half private sector. Okay. Um, of the CLC's affiliates. Uh, but the, so the private sector unions are generally more like, so like the Teamsters are paying attention to this. The steel workers are paying attention. Um, NUPGE is paying attention. So NUPGE is the provincial government employees okay uh but that's partly because of the the people who are in leadership right now are very knowledgeable about trade okay right that makes sense yeah um and and it's uh also easier to show just a direct impact on say auto or the teamsters or uh supply management right yeah so yeah it's very easy to go to members and say you might lose your job rather than like we might, in the abstract, lose a lot of flexibility over procurement policy as an economic development tool. Exactly. And yeah, it's, it's a little more exactly. Long-winded. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the industrial unions, where there's a direct impact, are going to be able to put more resources into it. Yeah. But the left, where there's a broader impact, it it seems to be more difficult to. That makes a lot of okay. sense. Yeah. 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 How has I mean, stop me if you can't talk about this, but uh, how has the sort of Unifor CLC split affected? 
this. So far, it hasn't seemed to affect it at all. We have we we never had conflicting interests okay. in NAFTA or the other things. So, um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be a problem. It's like there was a rally at the Montreal thing, and there were people from Unifor there and people from all the other unions there. Um, Hassan, who is the president of the CLC, was there meeting with negotiators, and so was Jerry Diaz, the president of Unifor. So, and I still work with um, sort of in the broader left movement. Like I was on a panel two weeks ago with Angelo, who's the researcher from Unifor, talking about progressive trade. So we're still kind of all generally working in the same direction on this issue. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, on the CPTPP, which has the you know become a, quite a mouthful. Do um, you also hate that name I, as, much as, that as name. much as I do? I hate that name, and I call it TPP, and and people with I don't know some skin in the game for the CP part. Uh, they get annoyed. What does CP for it stand for? Comprehensive and progressive. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's, I can see why that's annoying. Right? It's like renaming it made it a different trade agreement. The, the super <laughs> comprehensive and progressive can do no wrong Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. The woke trade agreement. <laughs> the WTA. Yeah. Um, so it just seems like such a liberal thing to do. It does. Gonna, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to stick a label on it. Yeah. And, yeah. So I guess that, that sort of Leads into the next question, which is uh, how does this meaningfully differ from the previous TPP agreement? So how it meaningfully differs is they suspended about 20 provisions. Okay. And some of them are ones that we didn't like that would have increased the cost of uh, drugs, for example, medicines in Canada. Uh, And the reason mostly that they're suspended is because if they had been in the TPP, then under trade agreements, there's this thing called most favored nation where you have to. So in NAFTA, we ha- we give the United States whatever access we give other countries. Right. It has to agreements. basically, it's a floor, right? It's like, right. Yeah. yeah. You have to give, if you're giving someone something, you have to give everyone that status, at least something yeah. as good as that. Right. Right. And so you negotiate specifically in trade agreements what will and will not be kind of most favored nation. Uh, and so if we had had these agreements in the TPP, the United States would have no incentive to join the TPP ever because they would have basically had access to those benefits right. from other trade agreements. Gotcha. Hmm. And so that logic was, we'll suspend these to draw the United States in. Uh, and so if the United States comes back, they may come back to life. Okay. So that would be unfortunate. I that guess. would be <laughs> unfortunate. So one thing with the TPP is that it, there was kind of a bizarre um, double two tracks of selling the TPP to the public. Because in Canada, I always heard the Canadian context, the sort of benefits, the economic benefits over the long term, which amounted to actually not very much, as I recall. They, they would say like, oh, $40 billion in benefits over 40 years or something. And I was like, well, that's actually not, not very much money much. in the context of a $2 trillion economy. But in the US, you often heard it sold as a sort of political and security partnership that was aimed at sort of blocking out China. Uh, which seemed to me the much more accurate tense or take on what the intent of this agreement was actually is. So how do we sort of I like account for this sort of discrepancy in how the Canadian uh, sort of economic community in favor of this trade agreement and the U.S. sort of equivalent constituency sold this so completely differently to their respective publics? Well, I think they must have figured that Canadians wouldn't 
have bought the other deal because I've pushed. So the TPP, uh, the analysis that the government did said it would bring $3.6 billion like that our economy would be that much bigger by 2040. Right. That's not very big. That's not big. It's it's (laughs) like 0.17% of our current economy. Yeah. So the new analysis says $4.2 billion, which is (laughs) (laughs) 0.21%. Huge rounding errors, basically. Right? And so I've pushed people on this issue, right? Like, how can you say this is a big deal when it's, it's nothing? Yeah. And they say, well, it's it's rewriting the global rules of trade. Yeah. It's proving we can move ahead without the U.S. It's preventing the global trading system from collapsing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I wasn't aware that it was on the verge of collapsing. <laughs> so th- this really, and I, we've actually discussed this before, um, but it really, it's the kind of double, like simultaneous opinions that people who are like very, very dogmatically pro-trade kind of hold that trade is simultaneously such an obvious no-brainer that why would anyone ever be against a trade deal anywhere ever? And also trade is delicate flower that must be protected at all costs because the mean protectionists are all out to get us. And, you know, why can't they, they see that this is in everyone's interest? And there's really a tension between the practice of a free trade in actually existing agreements and the ideal of free trade as sort of embodied in, you know, you get David Ricardo and comparative advantage thrown at you a lot, I imagine, in your line of work. Uh, like, you've never heard of it before. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's like there is this tension that I've noticed. And I think when you had that panel at Broadbent last year, that was really on display because it was almost like there were two conversations happening. Yes. Um, so I, your comments on, on this phenomenon. Well, and you, <laughs> you guys shared on Twitter Danny Roderick's yes. paper about this and and what are the two political economy theories that are happening? So there's a political economy theory that governments are just um, so weak that they can succumb to protectionists' interests. And so we need to have trade deals that will kind of, as actually Chris, I can't remember his name, he said this at the broadband debate, we need to like tie government's hands to the mass of free trade. And that's kind of precisely the problem some people on the left have with it. That exactly. It, yeah. Well, <laughs> when people say like it erodes sovereignty, they're not saying like they're going to run up an American flag at on Parliament Hill. They're saying it meaningfully restricts our policy options to respond to different problems. Exactly, and yeah. it meaningfully meaningfully changes the domestic policy space. Right. Like, what do governments are governments even willing to consider doing? Because mm-hmm. it's um, they're like, oh, we might get sued. And so when we talk about trade agreements having a chilling effect, that's what we mean. You're no longer saying, oh, maybe we can set up a community benefits agreement with this infrastructure plan. And then they're like, ah, but that would be hard. How would we figure out how to do it? We're just not even going to bother. Yeah. Right? So, um, yeah, that's what we mean. We're like, wait a minute, maybe we don't want to. So Danny Roderick says the other political economy strand to think about who's who's the bad guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that the entrenched special interests we should be worried about are big pharma, yeah. are, um, you know, large multinational corporations in the extractive sector, for example, in Canada, that's a big one. And so they actually, from like our perspective, from my perspective, those are the special interests who have government's ear. And these deals get written in a way to protect those special interests mm-hmm. at the expense of 
the people who are now being labeled as protectionist. Yeah. Because they say, I understand Smith and Ricardo, right? And I understand what type of protectionist. Like, we don't want beggar-thy-neighbor policies. We don't want to be doing things that um, make everything worse, worse for us. But I think supply management actually serves a function to keep standards high, right? Health and safety standards, food standards. And uh, so you can argue that there are things that are worthwhile protecting, like labor standards, health and safety standards. Let me just challenge you on the supply management one, because first and foremost, I'll I'll say (laughs) one of of the reasons for my conspicuous uh, silence here is trade isn't really my domain. I, I don't claim to know much about trade, having never, you know, formally studied it at all. Um, but on supply management, um, I've, I've always sort of found or I've always sort of believed this to be a bizarre argument that health and safety standards go out the window with the uh, free trade in milk, as if we don't have health and safety standards in every other area, every other agricultural domain. Canada, say, in beef or in other things that aren't uh, subject to supply management, still has you know, testing and agricultural standards and food safety standards for the products that we import. Why would that just go out the window if we get rid of supply management? It sort of seems to say that supply management, you know, it provides us one benefit. And if we get rid of it, then all the other benefits of supply management go out the window as well. Well, so I think with one of, with, in terms of supply management, um, one of the other ways that you can do that, like we have subsidies for our other industries industries yeah famously quebec pork is heavily heavily subsidized right and so the united states in dairy it's heavily subsidized and so canada doesn't subsidize it i mean we do directly we don't directly subsidize it we do by having a a price basically yeah Yeah. and so there's different ways to do it uh and because now we've signed trade agreements that actually would if we changed from supply management to subsidies that would be challenged but on <laughs> on the specific health and safety, the food quality standards, having trade agreements in say TPP uh, supply or not TPP, sorry NAFTA supply uh, is is coming up. Right. Uh, well, famously, Paul Ryan in Wisconsin started pointing to Canada as the big bad guy for keeping supply management. Yeah. Which is really rich, considering how much they directly subsidize. Their- uh, Wisconsin uh, especially. Right? <laughs> like yeah. uh, of course, yeah. it always goes back and forth. But if we were to get rid of supply management, and we've uh, negotiated in small concessions, small percentage here, a percentage point there, one on CETA, Increasing the TPP, quota. Yeah. yeah, take your pick, allowing you know 2% more European cheese in the Canadian market or something along those lines. It, it strikes me as just bizarre that this always comes up as like a, a food safety thing as if there all the regulations would then go out the window and we won't be able to say no we don't want you know ch- uh, milk with hormone x in it or yeah. y which is already banned right i think we like our gba yes banned. so that's there's actually two issues there so there's other parts of the trade agreement that would not allow us to ban we were really worried under CETA and under TPP that you wouldn't be able to keep those types of regulations because they could be non-tariff trade barriers so I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan and you hear in the news all the time like oh Japan's not bringing in Canadian pork because of this random thing that happened and Canadian farmers are like that's ridiculous we have a really high standard and that's obviously a non-tariff trade barrier yeah um so these types of trade wars do happen but then how do you find that line? I just think it's it's important to have a domestic policy discussion about are we okay with those trade wars happening yeah. 
um, making that type two error or type one error. Which type of error do we want to make? Do we want to protect health and safety more or do we want to protect trade more? Yeah. I mean, it really is a sort of like, I think there is a stealth outsourcing of domestic policy questions to trade tables. Well, and, and I heard this at the, so Ernst Cliff organized a day for the state of trade. And I heard this a lot during that day was these behind the border barriers. And, you know, again, from my perspective, I'm like, you mean domestic policy? And it can have these effects around not being able to ban hormones in milk and um, not being able to have government um, come into the employment insurance program because that would be considered a wage subsidy. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so there's okay. all kinds of like little policy spaces that we close off. Right. And they try to stay consistent. Negotiators try to stay consistent with what the current policy is in Canada. But then there are these ratchet effects right. where if – so right now this is sketch when government is, you know, closing down current corporations – um, and if you wanted to restart them, yeah. uh, oh, could you, point. right? Yeah, that's so really... they're consistent with current policy, but that doesn't necessarily reflect our, you know, it, it keeps yeah. narrowing it down and down and down. And so it limits our policy space. And it's a perception that you can never leave these things, right? Like, right. Well, that it would be too disruptive, disruptive or, you know, what have you. And it's, you know, these are fairly disruptive policies when they're taken. And it's just, you know. I think it's almost a Canadian, like, oh, we wouldn't want to be rude. and Well, and we actually, <laughs> we we actually trade, trade more with people that we don't have trade agreements. Like, if you look at taking the United States aside, right, the amount, the, the volume of trade that we have, we trade a lot with Brazil already, right? We trade a lot with China already. And so what what value added is coming from this FTA to trade? And is it worth what we're giving up? We don't have that conversation. No. Yeah, it's what you really hear in the media, Right. What you hear in the media is like, oh, we're opening up new markets. And it's like, we're not. not. We're not. And we're not just getting rid of tariffs. Like, these trade agreements aren't about tariffs. They're about, you know, IP. And they're about regulation. And they're about... Let, let me throw a whole bunch of things. <laughs> a bunch of things. Sort of a, a question into the mix here. And I, I am fully willing to concede my ignorance on this. How do... How do these arguments apply from the pro-Brexit side? Because it sounds like a lot of what you're saying would be the pro-Brexit style arguments where I feel like a lot of people uh, on the left, I I know the left sort of bends. I I think Corbyn is uh, in favor of Brexit, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps for some of these reasons. I think his position has been that it's been voted on and while he campaigned against it, he's going to respect the... Results of the referendum. So, so my question is, when you talk about the EU, I imagine all these same I actually, arguments I apply think... in very comparable ways. And so yeah. is there sort of a different position that people have, particularly on the left, in favor or against Brexit relative to the arguments you're making in sort of the Canadian international trade space? So I think it's really interesting because Brexit actually, um, so there is the European Parliament and they try to, they aren't just about protecting investor rights. There's stuff in Brexit about social policy and about um, environmental protection and about rights. So, so they actually... things in Brexit or do you mean in the original I mean in the, EU agreement? I mean in the EU. So yeah. that will affect Brexit. So some people wanted to leave Brexit because they felt like they didn't get to set their own human rights legislation or that kind of thing. And so... That type of the EU type of agreement where the countries are trying to harmonize domestic policy um, 
I think a lot of leftists would actually like if we were harmonizing up, harmonizing yeah. toward a higher EU standard. What we worry about in trade agreements is that we're harmonizing, A, only to what the multinational corporations want, what these entrenched special interests want, and that the voices um, of marginalized more marginalized folks, working class folks, aren't at the table and we're not being considered when you're setting these international rules. Um, and that you're doing it at the expense of other domestic policy that we think is important. So yeah. you're not trying to integrate trade with environmental policy. You're just doing trade. And then environmental policy like is an afterthought. Yeah. So the thing with the EU and how the, the that took place is A, it was done slowly over time. And it was democratic and it was um, messy because democracy is messy. But yeah, a lot of the leftists aren't anti-globalization. -global They're anti-setting the rules for one person on an international stage. Yeah. Right? I would go a little further than you on, on the EU. I'm, I'm a little more skeptical than many people. I think like Brexit on balance, probably a mistake. Uh, but I think when you say it was democratic... The Netherlands and France notably voted against the EU constitution, and then their legislatures ended up just ratifying it anyway. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, the EU parliament is widely considered to be a bit of a joke. Uh, while it does exist, it doesn't... No one really takes it all that seriously. I mean, it was a body that had Nigel Farage, notably, as a member for many years, which I think sort of right there, kind of... Can I just note, it's called the Hemicycle? It was like the chamber in which they meet in. Oh, really? It's called the Hemicycle. Interesting. Bizarre um, European word. Well, it just means a semicircle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the shape of the room. Indeed, but. yeah. And Norway's not in the European right. room, right? Yeah. And I think, especially from a union perspective, you'd look at joining the EU as one decision yeah. and leaving the EU as a totally other yeah. different decision. Because unions campaigned against NAFTA in the 90s. But when we met to talk about what should we be doing in this moment when NAFTA is being renegotiated, virtually no one was like, yeah, we should rip up NAFTA. We understand that now there are um, economic links that have been made that uh, yeah, would actually yeah. have 100%. disastrous yeah. impacts. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. So they're two different decisions, yeah. exactly. And also, like just the monetary policy side of Brexit, I think, or of the EU, has really shown itself to be a major, major failing. Right, having a single yeah. currency. currency run by the Germans, for <laughs> Germans and Greece. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't really work. Um, yeah, so that. Yeah, I think. Uh, <clears throat> I think people Brexit is kind of made it so that we can't have much of a discussion about the EU because any sort of Euroscepticism or Eurocriticism is sort of taken as, oh, well, you're just a Brexit dummy. But like, well, no, you know, I think that you can have a whole lot of nuanced conversations about how good has the EU actually been at its sort of goals of having a closer European, ever closer union, I think, as I think their, their constitution puts it, while protecting people's social rights and, uh, you know, increasing pan-European democracy. I think there have been real failings. So anyway, that's that's my EU take. Um, but like people from Poland might feel very differently. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it really has like there have been winners and losers and I, like any sort of policy. Yeah. And certainly I think one of the losers has been sort of the European ideal. I think has been very ill served by actually existing Europe. Um, yeah. So that's, oh, that's an interesting take. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I believe very strongly in the idea of European Union as an idea. Like, Yanis Varoufakis's whole uh, critiques of it, I think I take very seriously. And I think his idea that what Europe needs is actually more European democracy is, is pretty solid. But, yeah, that's not without getting too off topic here. Um, 
Yeah, so the, the other thing is there's a federal budget coming out. There is. There is. On and Tuesday. On Tuesday. God, that's really soon. Very soon. Are you going to lockout? Yes. Yeah, fun. It's going to be a long day. I may see you there. <laughs> um, yeah, so there have been big social policy announcements, or rather big social policy zeppelins, I guess, uh, that have been sort of floated. <laughs> zeppelins. Tri- trial zeppelins. Um, including uh, paid use it or use, use it or lose it family leave for fathers uh, or for, you know, father figures, second I guess. Parents. I know, second parents. Yes. Non-bearing parents or non-primary I, I've parents. I've said However non-birthing it's parents. Yeah. 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 But yeah. not all parents. There might not be. If yeah. you had two men that are fathers, neither of them were the uh, birthing yeah. parents. So tricky. It tricky is tricky. To define. Yeah. At, at any rate, for... So what's to, to flush that out a little bit? <laughs> With what, children, what's being uh, floated in the Canadian press is a five-week user lose it incentive for new dads, probably not new dads, um, probably a little broader than that. And Trudeau himself has been musing about this in the past week. What's sort of your take on like five weeks? Isn't very long, and it seems to be that the impetus for this comes to uh, putting women or the other parent back into the workforce how does a sort of a five week um leave really work with that objective so this comes from quebec has five weeks of right. visitor leave and <laughs> 80 percent of quebec fathers take some leave in the rest of canada it's like 20 percent of fathers take some leave and so it's been argued and since quebec has had it the number of fathers that have taken leave has tripled right it's increased dramatically and there is some research that there is a more equal sharing of household chores between uh, in a heterosexual couple between men and women if the men take leave now other research said this diminishes over time um and there's no like improved behavioral outcomes for the kids or it's not necessarily um life-changing right but it is nice it's nice to have some time set aside for the father to um, be able to bond with the child and and to normalize the idea of fathers taking off time when babies come so is this envisioned as you know the baby is born and then the father takes their five weeks off or the father takes let's just use father for simplicity's sake um uses the five weeks sort of at the end of what would be the mother's maternity leave. So he takes five weeks there and she's back in the labor force quicker. Or is, so is it envisioned we, that they're both off at the same time? What we would want is for people to be able to choose to do that because depending on how that works for your, your family, it's certainly nice. So my husband was a grad student when I had my daughter. And so he took a month of leave right at the beginning. And that was really nice to have someone help you integrate into figuring out what to do with this small screaming thing. Um, but then we also know that it's um, difficult to find childcare, that, you know, you might need to extend that leave for as long as you can. And so having that five extra weeks at the end for the other parent to take that time out would also be useful for some families, right? Um, but it doesn't address the core issue for women's labor force participation, which is affordable childcare. Like a five yeah. five weeks of of leave for one parent is not does not get you um, affordable childcare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like three hundred thousand women in Canada work part time because they have childcare responsibilities, right? And so we know that this is 
in urban centers across Canada, it's ridiculous. It's like a second mortgage yeah. for childcare. It could be and thousands of dollars a month. I mean, it could be thousands of dollars a month. And so if you have two kids, then maybe you get a nanny, but that's still, that nanny can only work 40 hours a week. And so, yeah. right. So it's very expensive to replace your own labor, your own free labor as a parent. For sure. Know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of if this, this comes out, would the ideal be that it's more time or that it's, well, I mean, I guess it probably would be, but also paired with some sort of either childcare subsidy or uh, sort of a Quebec style, um, very yeah. low cost program. Exactly. So what Quebec did all at the same time, they did a bunch of things. They did the parental leave, which also has a, a higher top up. Right. Um, so dads can take three weeks at 75% or something. So we also, we know that dads are also less likely to take leave if it's a huge pay cut. Because sure. you're having a kid, it's more expensive. Yep. If you don't have top-up leave negotiated. Okay, so we want a higher top-up for at least a portion of the, the benefit. You want um, pay equity legislation that they put in place. That helps um, make work pay for women. Right. And affordable childcare. So those, those three things together uh, work to help increase women's labor force participation. And you saw that in Quebec. You saw a huge increase after those three policies were, were introduced in women's labor force participation yeah. in Quebec. So I have an outstanding kind of concern uh, from the 2015 election. There's a sort of subplot of that election that I feel kind of just vanished off into the ether afterwards. But it was uh, Kevin Milligan famously had a paper come out right in the middle of it that said that sort of found that there had been reasonably adverse impacts on uh, childhood development uh, for after the Quebec implemented healthcare program. And I feel like as the broad left, we never really engaged with that argument in a very constructive way. And I never really saw a convincing response to it. That was like, because I mean, I think everyone would agree that increasing female labor force participation was a big win and that it is itself a quite laudable policy goal. But when you pair it with the adverse impact on kids, it is becomes harder to weigh that as like, ah, oh, this is definitely a slam dunk win. And do you know if there's been a lot of the consideration of that aspect of it since then? So Quebec um, has a lot of apparently kind of big box childcare centers because they were implementing the policy very quickly. Right. They didn't have the training in place for the workers um, and they had they had to go private because okay. it was faster to get the private centers up. Sure. And so what the response has been um, from the child care left movement in the rest of Canada has been, okay, let's learn from the mistakes that Quebec had in mm -hmm. place. And the other thing that happened in Quebec is that um, because they were trying to move really quick and they outsourced some of the work to upper income parents who had more resources to set up the nice little neighborhood daycares that they okay. wanted to set up. Right. And so some of those got in place faster than say at schools where lower income families needed them mm -hmm. that came later. And so what you would want to do is you would want to be working with municipalities and provinces to prioritize um, quality daycare where it was going to help actually the most, right? Okay. So the lower income communities. And um, the other thing is, is for sure there were really long days at daycare, right? Yes. Like they were open at seven until six or something. So you might want to think about if that makes sense for a six month old. Right. And just help. So let's bridge off Milligan for a sec. 
And I, I have another question, and this always strikes me whenever uh, we have the conversation about the cost of childcare. And that's why does it cost so much? Um, seemingly, it's an industry that has low barrier to entry. You, you would think that basically any adult could be trusted with one and or I, more children. I think, yeah, you've touched on the trauma <laughs> at the very beginning, which is that we set a high regulatory bar for these because you're entrusting them with small children. So, so this is my question is, right, have we found the right regulatory balance in terms of children? I was talking to a friend who... Um, go uses, I think, private childcare services in town that's done out of someone's apartment, uh, very close to where I live. And she said she was paying around sixteen hundred a month, um, but that the caretaker could only look after two children above age three. I, I don't have the exact numbers by regulation. Two children over age three and two children under age three, and there was some sort of tricky balance here. Um, I'm of course not suggesting that we. Deregulate them. <laughs> <laughs> Completely deregulate uh, childcare spaces because obviously everyone feels very strongly about it, but this just strikes me as an area. Well, because everyone feels strongly about it or because it'd be a bad idea? <laughs> do you have children? <laughs> I do not. But this is, this is just sort of one of the areas where obviously everyone is like... The reflexive argument is always to be in favor of stronger regulations. Right. For, but there's for, a, there, for protecting kids. For I protecting think, kids. Yeah. I think it's like very easy to sell that. But yeah. this is certainly a point. There's certainly a point of diminishing returns. And I have to ask whether or not anyone has ever considered and sort of where the political uh, motivations are in terms of scaling back that to increase affordability or does it only ratchet up in terms of higher cost and higher regulation and it never goes back and sort of no one has the political will to reconsider that balance. It's like the trade thing all over again. <laughs> no, I think that, so in Ontario specifically, there was a big wrench thrown into childcare when the government stepped into junior kindergarten and senior kindergarten. So some of the older kids, the way that the price structure had been set up, were actually kind of subsidizing the care of the younger kids. And so when those kids were taken, the three and four year olds were taken out into junior kindergarten, um, that changed the the industry structure. Yeah, because right? the the younger the child, the more attention yeah. they need, the more cost they exactly, incur. the more expensive it is. And so there were some childcare <laughs> uh, nonprofit centers that actually went under because they were no okay. longer able to. So it's like a high risk pool for, for kids, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I think that Ontario is still grappling with how to regulate smaller in home uh, daycares. This is something I hear about. A lot. I don't think we found no. the answer. Because it is, for sure. I mean, it is legitimately a hard policy question. Yes. Because like you do need to protect kids. Like I think the experience of like Indigenous Child and Family Services is a great example of like what happens when you don't have like a well-funded system that is adequately protected and like the kids like don't have anyone to bat for them. I think that's really bad. Exactly. But yeah. And, and like, what are the needs of children? So these yeah. big box childcare centers, like they pay their workers minimum wage. They don't necessarily, like, they'll have crayons in the cupboard, but, like, the workers aren't allowed to use them. They just have to be there for when there's an inspection. It's because the inspectors will come around and, oh, okay, you've got crayons that the kids might one possibly day use. one day use. Um, and Note to inspectors, check the tips of the crayons. <laughs> if all the crayons are fresh, you're being fleeced. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so no, we haven't found, I don't think we found the right regulatory balance on that yet. And there's so many different needs, as you say, like rural communities, remote communities. How do you fund that? Uh, downtown Toronto, it's really expensive to lease yeah. space. So um, should employers step in? Should they not step in, right? Like how, we haven't found the right balance. Yeah. But part of it is it's just expensive to replace free labor. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> right? It goes from costing nothing to costing something, which is, you know, just right there. That's a... Yeah. Yikes. Uh, on the subject of actually indigenous healthcare or uh, childcare, rather, uh, Aboriginal Head Start and Reserve, which is sort of the sort of like early childhood enrichment and kind of partially daycare uh, program uh, for reserves, is going only to about 20% of kids who are eligible for it right now. And there was like a serious, serious like capital deficits, like the buildings are falling down and stuff that they've built in like the 60s and 70s for this. So that is like a hugely, hugely underfunded kind of problem. Right. Um, that, yeah, also, I don't know, maybe that will be in the budget as sort of one. I know indigenous uh, funding is going to be a big part of the new budget, apparently. So we will see. Yeah. But yeah, that w- that came out a couple weeks ago that, uh, yeah, it's like 18 to 19 percent of kids that are eligible are getting it, which is crazy. <laughs> it's Incredibly like crazy. Any and other program, like 80% failure rate is not good. And you you want to be, be able to, so I went to um, Child Care 2020 in Winnipeg a, a couple of years ago, and there were presentations from Indigenous groups. They're like, we want to be able to bring elders in and teach yeah. language, like have that language sharing where that might, we might have a limited span of time of people who still have right. the language around. So how do we make that happen? And so um just being able to give money to communities to do what they need to yes. do with it. There was another story from a grandmother whose uh, son had gone to the daycare and was really upset. And so she had given him like certain things to be able to like a feather or uh, wanted to be able to smudge or then just brought a rock. And the, the daycare itself didn't have the training to right. know that like this rock was okay. He's not going to throw it at somebody. It's his like connection to his culture is why he has it. So right. um, even where there's not just individual indigenous daycares, where there yeah. are indigenous communities that provide yeah. that training. Well, and yeah, so, urban indigenous too, because yeah. I mean, it is, indigenous people are the fastest growing demographic group in Western Canada. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, uh, at least by birth rates, so maybe not by immigration, but um, I yeah. Think, I think it is... they beat immigration. Oh, wow. Okay. I yeah. Think, so but... even there. So that's like an issue people are going to figure out because <laughs> this is going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, any other issues you want to talk about again, or um, the one uh, that we touched on, and I think it just bears mentioning uh, for perhaps a fast take is now. Now I'm going to mess up the name. Mercosur. Mercosur. Yes. Um, so do you want to explain what that is and what's going on there? So Mercosur is a trading block in South America that has Brazil as the big um, economy there. And so Brazil's economy is actually bigger than Canada's. And Brazil has never signed a trade agreement with ISDS in it, this um, investor state dispute settlement mechanism. So they're arguably kind of the more left-wing trading bloc in South America. And so as soon as they've signed the CPTPP, apparently, uh, Canadian negotiators will be heading uh, down to start talks on Mercosur. And uh, they think that this will be the kind of first truly progressive trade agreement that they'll be able to negotiate uh, because the others were left over from the conservatives. NAFTA is obviously driven by Trump. Yeah. And so they might actually be able to do some good things on indigenous rights, gender impacts of trade, uh, labor rights. So, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical that there would be anything in a trade deal that would get us further 
down that way, I think what we want to be doing is carving out uh, other international obligations, like saying UNDRIP trumps right. this trade agreement, um, the Paris Accord trumps whatever we're negotiating here. Okay. Uh, so we'll we'll see if if that's what they do or how they they negotiate this. It'll be interesting. I think, especially because Brazil right now is in a lot of turmoil. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely, yeah. And they have a right wing government now, but they're probably will be electing yes. uh, a left wing government. There was the coup. Yeah, I was I was just trying to remember there was the coup and the charges and the whole thing. And I'm it's sort of fallen. Calling, I'm glad we're all calling it a coup. It, I, it's, I'm very <laughs> glad about that. I, I, it's what it is. I completely agree. I'm just saying I, I'm glad we're calling it what it is. Yeah, where the president was arrested or charged and then it went into... I, I sort of just fell off the map to me and it, it just struck me that I... Have no idea how all of that was resolved. Yeah. Well, the yeah, it was it was an <laughs> impeachment of the previous president, who was Lula's successor, who was president, very popular left wing president for a long time. Um, and Michel Temer, the new president, is sort of kind of on the mold of Mauricio Macri. Of, of, co- of course, <laughs> Mauricio Macri. How could I forget? Well, he in the sense that he's a sort of like right wing billionaire kind of guy. He's not very well liked and has proven himself to be incredibly corrupt very, very quickly. And they constitutionalized a freeze in social spending for like 30 years too, which is just like unbelievably bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brazil's constitution is actually fairly easy to revise, so that could probably be reversed. But okay. still, just like... I mean, that's just, like, incredible. And there are stronger trade unions in uh, Brazil and Argentina than there are in, say, Colombia or um, some of the other South American mm-hmm. Because the U.S. hasn't been killing them for 30 years. Exactly. That, <laughs> Sorry. No, exactly. There are... One of my colleagues was just on a trip to, to Colombia and yeah. people are being murdered. Oh, yeah. No, it's like... Place. I was not joking. <laughs> so just for people listening, it was, that, was, yeah. that was not a joke. Um, and the drug... I mean, I, yeah. I think it, it bears mentioning yeah, drug cartels and yes. all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, drug war is, of course, a export of... Uh, our southern neighbors so entirely it's entirely it has a lot to do a lot to do with the u.s uh, buying and prohibition of drugs so there you go where the, where's the profit to be made people will move in um one actually last question i had for you was um on what it, like you know in sort of blue sky kind of way what's uh, this like no pressure but what's the next big left-wing idea like in in oh, sort of in the sort of economic and yeah like uh, economic idea that like people are going to be looking at increasingly i think um cooperatives okay. economic democracy Woo! right <laughs> I, I definitely think because how are we going to be able to have uh impact local economies how are we going to um kind of operationalize the types of ideas that we want to see happen and i think cooperatives in that type of thing are where we're gonna see it Perfect. That was that was definitely the answer I was looking for. <laughs> I'm glad to be predictable. I should, no, it's, uh, it's it's my my uh, hobby horse personal? as well. So okay. yeah, I should register my disagreement with cooperatives based on a terrible personal experience with. Oh God, the housing co-op. Yeah, well, we can get into that another <laughs> housing time. Co-op. <laughs> well, Angela McEwen, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a ton of fun. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for coming. And uh, for everyone else, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.